Let Me Google That is sponsored by Water Cooler Trivia. In a disconnected world, feeling connected to the people you spend 3,000 million hours a day with at work can be weird and hard. Water Cooler Trivia can help. Their curious, clever crew creates custom trivia quizzes that you and your team can play on your own time, and then you can all bond over the results. And the best part is that you get to show off your encyclopedic knowledge of 90s pop culture. Get your geek on at watercoolertrivia.com and tell them let me Google that sent you. On my last trip to New York City, I was pondering the names of various districts and thinking about that part of Greenwich Village called the Garment District is very timely, as we just passed the anniversary of the deadliest industrial fire in the history of New York City, and honestly one of the worst in the entire history of the United States. Which is saying something because there are an awful lot of cities with long histories of factories and corruption within those factories that no doubt there have been many a perfect storm for disaster. In terms of manufacturing at the turn of the century, New York City was definitely a hub. The vast majority of the people who worked in these factories, garment or otherwise, were immigrants who had landed in New York and needed to find a way to support themselves and their families, even if their families were back home in Italy or Ireland or wherever they'd immigrated from. The task of earning money doing 14 hours a day of hard labor in the garment district overwhelmingly fell to young women. Many of them were just teenagers. Such was the case at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, which sat just a hop, skip, and a jump from Washington Square at 23 29 Washington Place in what was then called the Ashk Building. Now before we jump in, I gotta explain what a shirtwaist is and why it matters. Because this isn't just a story of a factory fire that killed a lot of people at the turn of the century. It's also a story about an uprising of women, and one that kind of hinged on this particular item of clothing, which was known as the shirtwaist. So if you try to conjure up Victorian and Edwardian era silhouettes, then you're probably thinking about the upstairs characters on shows like Downton Abbey, and those fashions that included at various points throughout that century or so. Bustles, corsets, and those lace-up boots with the heel that are like super steampunk now, but really cool. And also a lot of big hats. <laughs> so as women's fashions began to loosen up and progress away from the restrictive nature of the corset, there was this thing called a shirtwaist that became wildly popular. First because it was a hell of a lot more comfortable, but also because it was extremely cheap to mass produce. Which meant that it could also be sold cheaply, which means pretty much everybody had one. Or actually probably more than one. Of course, the upper class society women had more than just the basic practical shirtwaist. They could afford the more ornate varieties or ones that were made of very fine fabrics. But the general idea of a shirtwaist was something that actually was accessible to the majority of women regardless of how much money they had. So in terms of the look, the shirtwaist could be tucked into a skirt in such a way that it gave the appearance of a narrow cinched waist without the work of a corset. And so therefore it created that silhouette that was still kind of desirable, but it was also much more comfortable to wear. It was also a lot easier to maintain and you didn't need somebody to strap you into it. In today's currency, you could buy shirtwaists for as little as three to five dollars, so like cheaper than most t-shirts, or you could get really extravagant ones that would be upwards of thirty dollars a piece. New York City was the hotbed of shirtwaist manufacturing, and in the early 1900s there were hundreds of factories in the city producing them. One of those factories, and among one of the largest, was the Triangle Factory in Greenwich Village, which employed about 500 workers. The vast majority of them were young girls, many of whom had immigrated, and were working at sewing machines, often alongside their own mothers, and they were working 14 hours a day, 6 days a week, without breaks, even simply just to go to the bath. They were paid anywhere from like 
3 to $5 an hour. Now the conditions in shirtwaist factories, especially one as large as the Triangle, were much better than a lot of other factory jobs a person might have had at the time. Pay for the era was actually enough so that these workers could send money back to their families. They were working in an open plan sewing room with lots of natural light. Of course, it was nice, but it was not like passive, easy work. They often injured themselves on the machines and would have to just kind of keep working through it because the foremen were constantly watching them and women could easily be fired for even minor errors or even fired indiscriminately because there were always more young women who could work a sewing machine who would just be hired to replace them. Triangle was an enormous company and it reigned supreme in the mass production of these garments. And the men who owned the company went to great lengths to keep their company at the top of the game. One of the practices had the foreman at the end of every workday inspecting the bags of all the hundreds of workers as they passed by to leave the building. This was to ensure that they weren't stealing shirtwaists or supplies to make shirtwaists on the sly, or to use it for other stuff. But in order to facilitate this, it meant that the women could only exit through a single door to the building, having passed by the foreman's nightly inspection. All the other exits were locked up. This, of course, would be one of the many things that later came back to haunt the factory. The thing was, just because working at a shirtwaist factory wasn't the worst job ever didn't mean it was a great one. Women were quite literally working their fingers to the bone. The hours were completely unsustainable, and if an exhausted woman made even a minor error, she could be fired because of course there were plenty of ladies just lining up to take her place. This was wholly to the benefit of the company, which cared only about product and profit, and essentially considered workers very little more than cogs in a mighty machine. It wasn't just Triangle though, workers in factories throughout the cities were realizing that people couldn't be expected to work like that, and there was an increasing awareness of how the bosses of these companies were manipulating people and the system to get and stay ahead of their competition. So in the fall of 1909, the shirtwaist workers of New York City began to go on strike. They wanted more than just reasonable hours and pay. They wanted to unionize, and that was the company's worst nightmare. Specifically, it was the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory's worst nightmare. Now, an enormous company like Triangle could could hold off for quite some time while their workers protested, but the smaller companies in the city, approximately 70 of them, almost immediately agreed to let workers form a union because they simply couldn't survive if they didn't. But because that wasn't the case for the majority of the workers in the city who were employed at larger factories, over the course of the winter and into the year 1910, 15,000 shirtwaist factory workers, primarily women, walked out of their jobs and joined the strike. Now at first no one really took notice of it outside of the garment industry. And partially because the corporate big heads made sure to abuse the women on strike as severely as possible, going so far as to pay off the city police force so that they wouldn't intervene when hired thugs and prostitutes actually went into the picket lines and started beating the living shit out of the workers. But the city and the country finally did begin to pay attention to the uprising for a lot of the same reasons that these issues would get elevated today. Society women started to take notice, and in some cases they supported or even marched alongside the protesters. And other in other words, the movement got celebrity endorsement, and in some cases, financial support, which allowed it not just to continue, but grow. And grow it did. The International Ladies' Garment Workers Union, supported by the National Women's Trade Union League of America, eventually did negotiate for better wages, better working conditions, and at long last, a union at factories throughout the city, including Triangle, who finally acquiesced and agreed to let their workers form a union in February of 1910. But that victory was short-lived, because almost Almost exactly a year later, a fire broke out in the Triangle factory that destroyed it and killed more than 100 workers. Now while things had improved at the factory, the owners had continued that practice.
practice of locking up all but one exit in order to ensure that workers weren't stealing things. And there were other problems with the building's overall structure and protocols that meant really, once the fire broke out, there simply wasn't hope of everybody getting out safely. Now, the 10th floor of the building was reserved for the bosses and was kind of its corporate headquarters. Then there were like bookkeepers on the 8th and the 9th floor was where all the seamstresses were. On March 25th, 1911, smoke began to pour through the 8th floor when a lit cigarette, having been discarded in a scrap bin, caught fire. Those on that floor began to make their way out of the building. A bookkeeper called up to the 10th floor to warn the bosses, who took to the roof and hopped from the roof of the burning building to the adjacent building and then therefore to safety. But everybody forgot about the workers on the 9th floor, who just kept sewing up until smoke began to fill their room too. In fact, even if they'd wanted to warn them, short of someone running up to the 9th floor to yell, there really wasn't any way to let them know. Because in the building there was no alarm system, and the phone that was in the 8th floor only served the bookkeeper in terms of calling up to the bosses on the 10th floor. The 9th floor had no phone system, no fire alarm, no nothing. It didn't take long for the fire to engulf the building, and although some women made their way to the fire escapes or the passenger elevator, those elevators were slow and the fire escapes in bad order. So in addition to their collapse and women being plunged to their death trying to escape, the majority ended up simply trapped. Trapped and panicking and stampeding over one another trying to get out. Many of them leapt out the windows in desperation. Others were suffocated by smoke because they weren't spry enough to keep up with the crowd or leap over machinery that stood between them and a door or a window. Those who managed to get into an elevator eventually became trapped when the heat from the fire caused the mechanisms to fail, and they just leapt into the elevator shaft instead, which not only didn't work, but it actually made it impossible for the elevator to continue to move because of the bodies. By the time the New York City Fire Department responded, not only were most of the workers in the shirtwaist factory dead or dying, but rescue proved futile. As a crowd of people in New York City gathered and kind of stared agog up at the fire, New York City firefighters realized that their ladders only reached as high as the seventh floor. Altogether, 146 workers died. Almost all of them were women. The youngest were two girls who were just 14. Now, there are a lot of reasons that this was a horrible tragedy, but what stands out to me is that the fire became the factory's legacy rather than the tireless work of the women who fought for the right to unionize. But in the larger scheme of union and organizing history, the shirtwaist factory workers are remembered not just for how they died, but how they lived and fought for the rights of workers in New York City's garment district and beyond. And in a way, sort of the final thing that these workers did in terms of changing the culture of factory work and making things better for other people was that the aftermath of this fire did force a lot of reform in factories and is definitely one of the reasons that today we have things like OSHA that oversee workplace safety and make sure that things like what happened at the shirtwaist factory don't happen again.